Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the Mill Club Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I am alright, thank you Ed. I am watching the season ever so slightly change and I think I'm ready for Cozy Girl Fall. How are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm I'm good. I am also waiting for well, whatever the... the Florida equivalent of fall, fall could be called. Yeah, fall or the it does get it does get markedly cooler here in the autumn months, just not, you know, to the extent that it's super duper cool, but you know, it you you can at least put on a thin sweater. You mm-hmm. know. Not 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 totally cozy, but uh comfy. A light jacket. You could you you don't need to sort of really start dressing, you can gently ease into dressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can start a orderly transition to dressing. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm good. I am uh, rested. Uh, we had a couple of weeks off. Mainly one, you you had, went to a friend's wedding. I did. Uh, which, uh, by all accounts, by which I mean what you told me before we started recording, <laughs> was a lovely experience. The uh, the prime account, the one that really mm-hmm. the account what counts. Yes, it was an absolute delight. And of course, I cried the whole time. And then slid into my correct role as why not? So mm. yeah, great day. I imagine you're very much the woman from the this. I think you should leave sketch, <laughs> where it's the the dragon's den equivalent. And she's like, I'm worried about too much wine. Oh, whatever she says. <laughs> that spoke to me so much. I mean, obviously not the money bit, just the wine, mm. just 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 the yes. Anyway, moving on. Ed. Yeah, you didn't make your money off of the Charlie Brown float, whatever it is that she says she made her money from. I wish. <laughs> but uh, also, uh, you know, we had a couple of weeks off. Also, it was very nice because uh, I've been very busy at work and it was just, like, nice to kind of get, have at least a week to just kind of, like, decompress and things to return to something like normality. Also, because we had two weeks off, there were some news stories that have occurred in that time, including one that kind of had a meteoric rise and fall within the time between our last two episodes, which was that... Jeopardy, the long-running uh, game show here in the US, gained and lost a new host, <laughs> which was quite a spectacular thing to see where, you know, there had been this long period after the death of Alex Trebek where um, they had had lots of guest hosts and there was this sense that maybe they were trying out all of these different celebrities in order to, to see who could be the permanent host and then it turned out that they were going to give it to Michael Richards, who was the, the producer of the series, not to be confused with the other Michael Richards, although had they given the job to the Michael Richards from Seinfeld, it may have been less of a mess than what they ended up with. But, you know, he was the producer who was picking the role and he got it and there was some saltiness online amongst fans of Jeopardy as a result of that because people kind of felt as if they had been misled uh, and then... Over the next couple of days, like reports came out about how he had created like toxic atmospheres at previous jobs that he had worked at, at previous shows he had been involved with. Then there was uh, you know episodes of his podcast people found where he had made like really disparaging remarks about women. And then like a couple of days ago, it announced that he had resigned as Jeopardy host. So this was just such a 
kind of whirlwind story that you know pretty much as soon as he was announced as the host and like no one knew who he was i thought this is probably not going to end well in one way or another but the the speed with which it happened i think was quite striking yeah because it just feels like checks and balances you know it is that real dictator just sort of stepping in and being like oh would i like the job yes i would thank you me <laughs> further to that though um speaking of disparaging comments about women maya bialik has said some pretty awful things in her time which i don't think she's ever actually fully apologized for um so i think maybe oh god even as a, a neuroscientist you, you, you'd think she'd possibly think a little bit more before she says certain things I love the amazing thing about Jeopardy is how it is just one of those things that unites America and and that people are all sort of like coming together to sort of I think LeVar Burton I think everyone's particularly um keen on like Ryan Reynolds and people are sort of um calling for him and it's like should Jeopardy just become like the second election <laughs> and and you know you get a term of four years and all of this because it feels like that might be the fairest way to do it um I did see on Instagram I honestly don't know whether it was fake or not but a uh, temporary role as producer at Jeopardy on Culver City <laughs> pop up <laughs> like on a Facebook advert and you're like I mean I wouldn't put it past them that's the problem yeah, wow. I, I I wonder if part of it is that this is the kind of show that everyone would have eyes on anyway. I can see it a little bit like, um, obviously, in America, you've got Dancing with the Stars, but we have um, Strictly Come Dancing in the UK, which is the same format. And I remember when Bruce Forsyth passed away. And again, that was sort of like, oh, God, you know, he's been around for so many people and he's got that same kind of... Um, not quite the same because I think Trebek was like unique in in how many people felt for him, but Brucey was still very uh, very well thought of, and mm. and then just kind of like oh well, we'll just get Claudia Winkleman and we're just gonna cut we're not even gonna try and replace him we we actually just have two hosts and you know Tess Daly and Claudia Winkleman have lovely chemistry, um, but yeah it's so I wonder how much of it is that everyone has eyes on it anyway. And that we're still at this point where everyone still has possibly a bit too much time on their hands. Yeah. Because I'm just trying to figure out why this accelerated to the point that it did. And that I am obviously very pleased with the result. (laughs) It's just amazing that it managed to get to that point before someone sort of like almost coat hooked him off the stage. Mm. Yeah, it certainly seems to be... Uh, definitely a thing that maybe, like you say, people are stuck inside and <laughs> have too much time on their hands still. So I think a thing that people really seem to care about. But I do think that, you know, the suddenness with which Drebeck died, obviously he'd been ill for a while, but, you know, even so, the prognosis, it, like, leading up to it had generally been, like, fairly positive and he had kind of, like, soldiered through, which I think generated a lot of goodwill. And so people were paying more attention to Jeopardy than maybe they had in a few years and then i think them not having someone ready to go as a host right away was kind of like the real problem here because then they went through this whole thing of like rotating hosts which makes sense but then 
they i think if they had been more upfront and saying like we're not like auditioning people we are going to try and pick someone who we think would be good for the job then there wouldn't have been quite as much of the like backlash to mike richards getting it or to the sense that like lavar burson had been overlooked because part of the like fan campaign to try and get him to be the host was people thinking like you know if he gets it and people see what a good job he'll do then surely he'll be in the in the running whereas the behind the scenes story seems to have been you know they weren't considering like aaron Rodgers to be the jeopardy host you know that he would give up his incredibly lucrative position as an nfl quarterback to go and uh host a game show like obviously that was not realistic so i think that sense uh, that uh produced a sense of indignity for a lot of people which then you know spurred them maybe to like tear tear the new guy apart and to like dig into his past statements which you know is maybe something the uh producers of the show should have done themselves uh a bit more thoroughly to say mm. but then again if he's the producer and he has final say there's like very little that they could do if they came up to him and said hey this stuff is probably gonna look badly on you yeah. uh in other news uh there were a couple of very very sad passings uh this week first up the death of uh sonny chiba who uh, was a japanese a film actor film and television actor most famous in the west arguably for his role as hattori hanzo in the kill bill movies and you know he's someone who would have small roles in american films over the years but has a absolutely voluminous um catalogue of films working in in japan which uh i dug into a little bit this week in the wake of his passing and uh, I watched The Street Fighter, his 1974 movie, and Return of the Street Fighter, the sequel that was made the same year, <laughs> because the first one was a big success, and they made, they at the time at least, they made films very quickly in Japan, <laughs> so they were just cranking them out, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. I, I think the thing about Sonny Chiba that was like really compelling, particularly in his youth when he was such an athletic performer, was he was so intense and so brutal those movies are incredibly violent um the street fighter in particular was the first movie ever to get an x rating for violence alone in the u.s and one of the things that i always find really uh wonderful when you watch older movies is uh when you hear that a movie was very controversial for the time and then you watch it and you think going in oh i'm sure this will be tame by our standards like something like witness for the prosecution where everyone's kind of like not witness for the prosecution um anatomy of a murder where everyone talks about oh you know it was really really uh controversial for the time and because of its use of language and the language in particular is they say the word panties a bunch and like now that just seems horribly uh, uh like hilariously tame but where you're watching the street fighter like within the first 10 minutes i was like oh this earned the x rating like <laughs> some horrible things are happening to people right now and time has not diminished how awful these things are that are being done to people's eyes and bodies and he's just like so such an intense and charismatic performer even as he is performing acts that are just like horrendously brutal arguably more brutal than the villains of the movie commit uh, you can't take your eyes off him and you can't totally lose sympathy for him because he is such a great anti-hero figure. And uh, 
I thought both those movies are fantastic. I, I'm really looking forward to exploring more of his work because a lot of it uh, is actually weirdly in the public domain now. Um, oh. I think because the copyrights lapsed from a lot of those movies, so they're all like on the weird free streaming uh, streaming services like Tubi. Uh, so I'm excited to, to kind of like dig into some of those more because uh, he described me as like an amazing actor and you know even though he died you know he was 82 when he died so he was obviously quite old he died of covid so i think there is still a sense of like you know we probably could have got a few more movies out of him because he was still fairly active even into his last few years so um rest in peace to, to sunny jiba a kind of great icon of brutal martial arts cinema uh and then the other one um sadly was the death of sean Locke, the british comedian who died at the age of 58 from cancer, who uh, just, you know, like the outpourings of grief from the entire British comedy community over the last week, I think attest to what an inspiration he was for various people. You know, he's often described as a comedian's comedian, someone who other comedians would run to watch, but who also had like a real populist appeal through his many hilarious appearances on panel shows over the years. And like the clips of those that were being shared around really reminded me of what a hilarious man he was and how, you know, when I was watching lots and lots of panel shows in the sort of early to mid 2000s, how every time he showed up on something, he would be one of those people who like, I'd be, oh, great, I'm going to hear some of the funniest shit I've ever heard <laughs> in the course of the next half hour because he had such a kind of like a fertile, funny mind and such a great delivery. He's just incredible. And one of my favourite clips, actually, just to mention that I've sort of rewatched, is where he manages to really... <laughs> He's also... We forget like, what a good actor he was as well because obviously 15 mm. Stories High that he um, yeah. wrote and, and starred in is a real like hidden gem of and and like so referenced and beloved by um not just comedians in britain but like comedy aficionados it's like that's a given that you love 15 stories high because it is just so bleak and Mm -hmm. uh, but he's he's such a good actor because there's he manages to convince uh john richardson that he should swap this this box that he's got in this stupid game and because one of them has to end up with a box with a carrot in it. And it, and it. and it's just like the most beautiful bit of misdirection I think I've ever seen. And I think it just explains like just what a mind he had and that he mm. is it, like 58 is no age at all. That he had his family around him is a, is a comfort. Um, that he still went on panel shows after... Um, first i think it was skin cancer first which he put down to uh just being a builder in, mm-hmm. um before and not having any sun protection like before sort of really going to comedy full-time and then getting throat cancer but still going on panel shows and there are moments where you could hear that he was a little bit husky but it was so immensely private and i think that was it like as of course is everyone's right to but it was just such a shock for everyone um and yeah, the outpouring just goes to show how many people loved working with him as well. And I think what you said there in terms of the populist appeal is really interesting because 
for someone who is kind of like England's Frankie Boyle. Um, mm. He he was remarkably he, and he wasn't even that sort of cheeky chappy. Like he 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 was kind of he reminds me of Larry David as well because he's got yeah. that kind of very grounded, but also just like anything could go a bit manic. Um, and again, it's one of those really sad passings and it kind of reminded me of Paul Ritter not that long ago as well in mm. that um, everyone said how kind this person was um, so yeah really really sad yeah I think my favourite story that I saw someone share about him and I can't remember who it was but someone shared it on Twitter was walking along with him and they saw Paul McCartney in the street somewhere and he said oi Paul and like ran over and started talking to him and then when he came back the person said to him uh how do you know Paul Mac- does he know you he says no he knows he's Paul McCartney doesn't he uh, which I just thought is such a funny line and such a great <laughs> such a great attitude to take I think like yeah like he'll, he he's the mo- one of the most famous people in the world so of course if someone comes up and talks to him <laughs> he'll just assume it's someone that knows him or whatever um but yeah just that sort of energy and that sort of enthusiasm for just things, which I think was readily apparent whenever, you know, he would do comedy, um, will be sorely missed, I think. No airs and graces. We'll definitely miss Sean Locke. So we'll go on to the main topic for this week. It's a show and tell episode where each of us brings something that we've liked recently and want to kind of like talk about more in depth. Emily, what have you got to talk about this week? I am bringing to the table On Becoming a God in Central Florida, which Mm. is a Showtime original, as far as I'm aware, uh, co-created and co-written by Matt Lutsky and Robert. Now, the problem... I'm so sorry, Robert, because now whenever I see this name, I just want to go funky, a la (laughs) Arrested Development. Maybe it's funk. I don't know. I'm so sorry, Robert. Um, Robert Funk. Um, And I'm not familiar with so their work as far as i'm aware this is at the very least their first collaboration if not their mm. first kind of series and it just blew me away because i'd heard rustlings of it being really good you know in the kind of the hype pipeline the hype line if you will but i just loved it and i haven't seen a show that got me really excited and hit all of the different kind of flavour profiles you really want because I don't want anything that's like wildly heavy but neither do I want something that's just fluff or like a really um I I just haven't seen anything quite like it before Ed and that was what was so refreshing so it stars Kirsten Dunst as Crystal Stubbs who is a working class mother of one in uh we never actually say specifically where it is in florida either but it's in um close proximity to disneyland maybe you'll recognize more of it than uh than i did ed but it follows her kind of climbing the ranks through this horrendous pyramid scheme and it's very difficult to talk about without spoiling it because the first episode is one of the best first episodes of anything i've ever seen <laughs> oh, cool. um mainly because it manages to throw a real butte uh towards the end so i'm going to do my best to make this a completely spoiler free um 
ground up because I don't want to take that away from anyone because when it happened <laughs> uh my uh, I was watching it uh, with my partner David and uh, we we both just like clasped each other and we're just like oh we're 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 all in we are all in let's watch another one um it's currently on uk netflix which is how we got to see it i'm not too sure um how else you'll get to see it maybe it's still lingering on showtime i'm not too sure sorry everyone but we follow kirsten dunce in a role that i've not really seen her kind of in this full throttle and incredibly uh complex but yet darkly comic role. And this truly is hits um, the dramedy, but I don't want to call it a dramedy because I feel like that term is so beleaguered with noble attempts, but still very much uh, attempts, shall we say. Um, Crystal is beyond determined and is driven through a refusal to go below a certain line of living instead of really acquiring material gain. Like she's interested in security and power. And I think that's something that is so fascinating about her character because she manages to cut through a lot of the illusion that, that permeates her day to day because she can see people in real positions of influence and that's what she wants. I was absolutely blown away by the entire cast. I mean, it's just a dream. Julie Benz, I think she only pops oh, up. Oh, cool. Yeah, oh my God, she pops up a few times um, as part of a, a gold Washington couple. I think that's the level that they're in, in the pyramid scheme. Um, one half of Carol and Carol. Um, and you've also got uh, Alexander Skarsgård, as Crystal's husband, Beth Ditto as the wife of her neighbour. Uh, speaking of, um, as we were uh, just before we started recording, Ed, um, I finally got round to watching Red Dragon, uh, and there's mm -hmm. none other than Ted Levine, also of the uh, Hannibal verse, um, mm, playing cool. a very different role from Buffalo Bill, but still, like that voice is just, it just incredible, like gravel and velvet all churning together in a cement mixer to, but the two actors who really blew me away who I've never seen before um, are Theodore Pellerin who plays Cody Bonar who is this kind of like who is hook line and sinker into the pyramid scheme comes from a background you would not expect and his performance is just desperation like manifest it's like it's it's so comic but also so unhinged all at once and I just couldn't take my eyes off of him he manages to somehow make his eyes go even bigger and wider so he's just this kind of figure of like you want to empathize with him but you also can't help but pity him because there just must be a better way and then the other actor is Mel Rodriguez who I think is in I want to say CSI, but I think I'm wrong. Uh, he's in... Um, wait, might be someone... Oh, I was thinking of someone else. Uh, I thought he was the guy from Better Call Saul. Ah, uh, no, let me double check. Oh, uh, oh wait, yes, he, he was in um, The Last Man on Earth. And he's also in Battle... He was in three episodes of Better Call Saul, yes. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. And, um... Oh, he's, he's great. I enjoy, I enjoy Mel Rodriguez a lot. 
He is incredible. This is the first time I've seen him in a, well, in anything, but also it seems like he's a character. He is in Little Miss Sunshine. I think he has a sort of small, smaller part in that. Um, and he is just, oh God, Emily, use your words. Again, rendering me speechless. <laughs> because he has a different kind of desperation happening to him than Cody. He's Ernie. He is Crystal's neighbour. Um, Beth Ditto is his wife. He has a son. Um, he works with Crystal at the kind of run-down water park. And he is far too nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but he also he sort of seems happy on the surface, but obviously still waters run deep. And he's just incredibly vulnerable, right? Which is kind of a different flavour of desperate because he really needs something to lift him up and he doesn't have the guidance or the filter to realise that it's actually something that could probably push him down. So I haven't seen a character go through such a unique sort of journey of trauma in a really long time. And again, this is it. Like, there's just so many different... It's a cosmic gumbo, Ed, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's a Mm -hmm. cosmic gumbo. It moves to the rhythm of jazz. But it's incredibly funny. Like, the comic timing and the kind of the visual gags I really appreciate. It is still very much about, you know, the classic themes of, like, the American dream. But it doesn't feel hokey, because I feel like we're only just starting to scratch the surface of pyramid schemes in fiction. Because mm-hmm. um, I am certainly, my um, preference of true crime is your scams and your frauds. So I feel like I've listened to pretty much every podcast about every fraudster and pyramid scheme going out there. But if anyone feels like there's a good one that they'd like to throw my way, please, I cannot get enough of them. And I think it's because there's something about the cult-like nature of it and that people are being so badly exploited. But it manages, on becoming a god in central Florida, I think the the one thing is that I'm not keen on is the name. I'll be honest. Right. Because it's wordy and it's also not really what it's about. It kind of is, it kind of isn't, but it almost makes me feel that that's what Ted Levine's character wishes anything about him was called. Whereas actually I think it's much more faceted than that. And even though there are sort of like religious aspects to it, it, it's actually not really about deity it's so much more about kind of a gritty power struggle and the depths that people will push themselves to thinking that they're climbing higher like that paradox is happening over and over again and there are little beautiful moments where Theodore Pellerin's character Cody is preparing for some uh, presentation and he's dancing on the stage with a full-length mirror so that he can see how he looks and someone else is putting dry ice around and you're just like oh yeah it's all smoke and mirrors and here mm. he is with this image of himself so it's just done with a really kind of delicate touch but it's got that kind of like sass to it that I've really missed again I can't really think of a tv show 
that's just so sort of like buckwild entertaining as mm-hmm. well as being quite dark because it's not fully the length you know the, the sort of level to which the sopranos goes because i think the sopranos is very darkly funny but that's more of the kind of the great american novel whereas on becoming a god in central florida feels like a novel as well but one that's very modern i think it's amazing just to see like the 90s like being fully retro as well <laughs> you're right. like, yeah, yeah no one's got like mobile phones and <laughs> and like some of the outfits that um kirsten duns wears are spectacular um but yeah it's just got this like slight angle to the universe perspective and i urge everyone to watch it because uh, and I and I'd like to think that um, it will be revived. Uh, the The story goes that a second series was greenlit, but then due to the pandemic, it was cancelled and just hasn't seemed to be sort of tabled again. And I would I'd really love to see where it goes next. But at the same time, if it doesn't, and this is all we get, it's still better than the majority of stuff that's out there. So that's on becoming a god in Central Florida. Cool. I I think, yeah, the name for me always struck me as like a little bit of an impediment to it, um, maybe finding a big audience, because like you say, it is quite wordy. And also it's maybe not terribly indicative for people of what they're going to get. It kind of it's kind of has the opposite problem of another one season wonderful TV show from about 10 years ago called Terriers. I love Terriers. Great show. Terrible name. Doesn't tell you anything about what it's about. Yeah, true. I guess at least with Terriers... Um, There's a dog in it. There is a dog. <laughs> there is a dog. And it is at least a one word. I think I think the main thing about On Becoming a God in Central Florida is that it just sounds so archaic to me. Mm, like, yeah. even if it's wordy, it, it, it sounds... Like, no one really speaks like that. Like, not even Ted Levine's character. So it just feels like a voice that doesn't match, that that shouldn't be speaking on behalf of the show anyway, you know? Right. Why why is that the title? Could I come up with a better one, Ed? Um, No, not right now. Uh, Crystal Fun Time? There you go. That's (laughs) that's a start. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's, I mean, it's not the same sort of, you know, it's not as bad as scrotal recall, but mm, it's not yeah. too far off. Yeah, and at least they got a chance to change that. Indeed. <laughs> Switch it to something a little more possible. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I was really bummed to find out that, that show had been cancelled because I haven't seen it yet. You know, it's definitely on the list, but the premise of it sounded so great. And I just, you know, I want nothing but good things for Kirsten Dunst, who I feel like had a, the like you know the first arc of her career obviously you know she becomes a huge star very early on in her life you know she's kind of uh acclaimed as kind of giving a genius performance in into the vampire rightly so i think she's great in that um with a very tricky role and then obviously becomes like you know a huge star in the sort of late 90s early 2000s you know she's she's the first mary jane watson and that obviously puts her into like a real echelon of fame and then she kind of made the switch into more art housey stuff working with Lars von Trier and you know doing Bachelorette and things like that but 
those kind of roles didn't hit uh, in the years after that. And you kind of wonder if, like, she had the, like, obviously the misfortune that she was on a show that came out immediately before a massive pandemic, which made it hard to produce a second season. But also, like, maybe she had the misfortune to make the jump to television a little too late. Like, obviously, she had that run on Fargo, which I think, you know, obviously presaged this. Um, but, like, maybe if she had been the star of a TV show in the early two, in like the early 2010s when things were really sort of starting to kick off in terms of people moving over to TV from film, that maybe it would have found like a more receptive audience. Interesting. I think we're at this weird point now, aren't we, where even though uh, Denny Villeneuve would like to sort of say otherwise, no, it's like, not now, Denny. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> just, just focus on Dune, yeah? Like... <laughs> <laughs> just you um but we're at this it feels like we're always at interesting points in terms of how tv just seems to be where people can just do more interesting projects and i think that's true even if netflix is still beleaguered and patchy at best where mm. else would you see something like the chair which yeah. i just started watching and is a delight uh two episodes in obviously early days but still because you just wouldn't like where where maybe hbo max but again even if these flames don't uh turn into big fires at least they flicker brightly for a little while for example i love dick which i think was so sadly overlooked but at Mm. least it got made yeah you know and i think with kirsten dunst she's just been she, I think, is one of the few child stars who turned out okay. <laughs> Possibly because she wasn't under the same scrutiny of media that some of her counterparts were. It yeah. also seemed like she took like good time out, only did projects kind of as she was growing up that were really interesting. Her relationship with Sophia Coppola is so fascinating, like the way that Kirsten Dunst talks about her mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of being like, the different sense of the female gaze and the sadness of that she already knew the male gaze from from such a young age. I, I, every so often I see that um, photo of the premiere of Interview with a Vampire and I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> she's just a tiny child. But I wonder, I because she is, of course, like the biggest name of On Becoming God in Central Florida. And I think there was a huge level of good feeling for her off the back of Fargo Mm, yeah and I think she's just she is a stalwart even at like what in her late 30s early 40s which I think is incredible so I think there's a draw for her anyway but I do think I mean it's so difficult it's always it always feels like um like dissecting it and took the post-mortem and sometimes you're like well it's not quibby it's not always obvious why it doesn't like completely take off um and again we are at this point where it's like well the pandemic definitely didn't help anything (laughs) um because i wonder if it would be a grower you know because i I think the same with breaking bad and that becoming like globally such a sensation wasn't off the back of the first series it was that real kind of like slow burn that everyone was like getting dvds and it was still that point where you know that sort of word of mouth and and the sort of rolling aspect of it Mm. 
and, and like Vince Gilligan thanking Netflix in one of his many acceptance speeches because he was basically he was very clear like the show hitting Netflix yeah. and people catching it there was what drove the later seasons to be a hit. Yeah, because people caught up and was like, "Oh, this show's really good. We should watch this now that new episodes are out." Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to tell, but it, I think the really sad thing is that it was given the green light, and then now it's just like, "Oh, well, no." It would be amazing if. Netflix look at the viewing figures and are then like, oh, well, we'll take it because they do mm. seem to, I think what Netflix do really well is basically taking shows that haven't had a home and giving them a home. Yeah. I don't think they have as good or caring a track record with their originals. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah. It's almost like I'm not a regular mom, I'm a cool mom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, oh, um, I, it would be lovely if someone else picked it up because again, it's the idea of like, well, they had. I want to know what Robert and Matt are thinking. I want to know what they. Um, George Clooney's an executive producer. What more do you want, George? Get on it, please. <laughs> Ed, what do you have for me this week? Well, I have one of my most anticipated films of the year, which I, I watched uh, this morning. I had hoped to go and watch it in a theatre, but it only played for like five days near me. Uh, so I had to make do for watching it on uh, at home, which uh, was fine because I still thought it was uh, a really indelible piece of work, which is Leos Carax's Annette. Ooh, I'm so excited. Yes, Annette. Uh, Leos Carax is a, a French filmmaker who has been working you know, since the, the 80s, has made lots of uh, brilliant and often quite dreamlike movies most recently his yeah his most recent feature i think was holy motors which came out nearly a decade ago at this point and annette is his one of his more normal movies certainly of recent vintage but it's still quite odd um, it stars adam driver and marion cotillard adam driver is basically evil bo burnham oh <laughs> okay <laughs> He's a stand-up who goes on stage and tells truths. <laughs> um, oh my god, no. No, um, you're joking. Really? That is that is what his role in the movie is. Oh um, my god, I should have known from the he will continue to sing during Cunnilingus and the motorbike, of course, <laughs> the things we all associate with stand-up. Yeah, um, and uh, he performs in a one-man show called Ape of God. I'm Which... sorry, called what now? <laughs> Ape of God. Oh God! Um, the movie, the movie knows that everything he's doing is bullshit. I should point out the movie doesn't pretend like what he's doing is profound. It's very much treating it as like this is clearly a ridiculous thing for someone to be doing and to treat like it's an important thing. Um, but it is very funny because a lot of his stage show is him like he walks out through um, dry ice smoke wearing a bathrobe and like he's wearing his he's in pretty much just a bathrobe and his underpants and there's so much of it. Where you, if you showed this to someone a year from now, you would say, "Oh, is this making fun of Inside?" Because like so much of it feels like the like just someone did. Let's make fun of that that special that everyone really liked. But of course, that's not the case because this script's been like written for ages, and the movie was filmed before Inside was. Um, but it's really funny watching it and just thinking like this. This all feels like it's making fun of a thing that it couldn't possibly have been making fun of, but is actually a very pointed and very intelligent kind of takedown of but that's beside the point um yeah so he's a stand-up uh named henry mchenry um, um and he is in a relationship with marin cotillard who is a opera singer and 
the start of the movie is kind of about their relationship and how they navigate being in the public eye. Then about halfway through, um, they have a child named Annette who is a puppet. Um, <laughs> and uh, then some more things happened. Happen. Uh, try not to spoil too much, but they find out that uh, Annette has a beautiful singing voice, even though she's only two years old and also a puppet. And uh, it kind of becomes more about the exploitation of of Annette as a child, and it's a thoroughly strange movie in concept, but in action, in like execution, is of it like you just kind of roll with it. It's like you first see the Annette puppet, and then you realize, oh, that's just how the child is going to look. It's not like American Sniper or that um, n- unused robot doll from uh, Twilight, where it's like, you, oh, they tried to make something realistic and they failed. It's no, this a stylized child, and this is the the creative choice they've made. Um, it's also a musical, uh, as you alluded to, with uh, singing while performing Cunnilingus, um, and the music is all by Sparks. Oh who also appear in the movie uh, in multiple roles. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, it's a cosmic gumbo. <laughs> it's another <laughs> cosmic gumbo. gumbo. Um, but uh, what I, I find really fascinating about the movie and what I really like about it is that the three kind of like main driving forces of it are Sparks, who obviously, you know, legendary... Uh, band who've been around for 50 years and who have experimented in lots of different musical styles over the years this kind of plays into their more uh, theatrical side of things they've always had a certain archness and a certain certain theatricality about them Leos Carax is a filmmaker who always like delights in kind of a certain puckishness and a certain surrealism and Adam Driver who's obviously who's on screen for most of the movie is kind of committed to a intensity and a realness in his performance. And there is very little overlap between those three creative endeavours. Like, those are all kind of at odds with each other. And what's great about the movie for me is that so much of the movie is about all of these things being in competition with each other and kind of butting up against each other and very occasionally, like, harmonising in a real beautiful way um, probably the best example is the song uh, We Love Each Other So Much, which is sung by Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver and is the scene where uh, Adam Driver sings whilst performing Cunnilingus, where you have you know, a very intense performance from both of them and it's also it's a very sexy scene, uh, but it's also kind of dreamlike in that it's kind of like weaving in and out of different experiences of their day-to-day, but you've got this song which is on the lyrically on the surface is just them saying you know we love each other so much but tonally is incredibly sad and desperate Mm -hmm. and it's kind of got all of these things kind of going on at the same time and they all kind of they're all very disparate ideas but they heart like say they harmonize with each other really really well and you know there are other times in the movie where these elements don't really work together like the music that sparks wrote for it um is in a register that Adam Driver cannot hit a lot of the time because he cannot hit the sort of high notes that uh, Russell Mayle can hit. So um, a lot of his singing, you know, he makes a damn good effort of it and I think he brings the intensity to it from a performance point of view that he kind of carries it. But like, if you were to assess this on a pure vocal performance, he's not hitting a lot of the notes he needs to be hitting. Um, And then also his 
intensity with the kind of like not quite real quality that Carax's camera has to it and you know the way that it's kind of sometimes shifting between between different areas of reality you know those are sometimes odds but like I say like there's enough times when these different loops kind of create a Venn diagram that it remains really fascinating all along and it remains really compelling all along and it remains emotionally engaging all along as well because like say as long as you buy into the fact oh the child is a puppet then like the central emotional core of it which is like how does this man deal with the fact that maybe he doesn't really view other people as important to his life you know how you know how does that play out eventually does this end you know does this end in a bad place for him and yeah i just found it to be like a completely enrapturing experience even during the times when you know you could easily look at the flaws and say this totally doesn't work but the way in which it doesn't work is always like really fascinating to me so the ch- the child is a puppet mhm yep what was it what what was the thing about cam this year that it's like and the child is like it's a, like very unique family uh setups uh thinking of Tatan as well mm. uh, mm-hmm. the eventual winner um, it must be really annoying if you're like Leos Carax and it's been like 10 years since you've made a film and then you go, oh, someone else did the weird kid thing. Oh, <laughs> oh shoot. I can't wait to see it. The It's amazing because like, I just can't believe, sorry, I know of course I'm hung up on this for like, from a very personal perspective, but nothing in the promotional material led me to believe that Adam Driver was a stand-up comedian. Yeah, that was a surprise. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing because if you are going to have someone in a in a role in it, sorry, in a job who is also someone who doesn't believe other people necessarily exist, that's going to be the one. Otherwise, he'd be a <clears throat> podcaster, but maybe that would be too close. Her head. like the poster as well is just. Like they're 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 dancing in in the wake of a giant wave. Is that right? Am I? Am yes, I, that's yeah, correct. Yes. Not hallucinating that. I mean, it sounds great. Because you saw the Sparks Brothers documentary before this, didn't you? I did. Yes. Would you recommend that's the way round to do it? Yeah, I would. I would say so. Um, particularly if people aren't familiar with Sparks's music or their their whole thing, because. I think that's a good primer for the style of the music they do, which you'd like to say in recent decades kind of veered towards more theatrical and they've done kind of like stuff that's almost like pseudo operatic um, sort of in some of their recent albums. And, and that kind of fits this. And they've also done, you know, stuff that's just out and out musicals. Like they did a show a couple of years ago, which was all about like, what if Ingmar Bergman went to Hollywood in the 50s? <laughs> which obviously a massive commercial choice, you know, such a, such a sellout role for them. Um, but um, they, I think, and, and, and also I think there is an added poignancy to watching this movie following their arc, because one of the subplots in the Sparks Brothers documentary is all about the times when they very nearly made a movie and it didn't happen. Like... In the seventies, I think, or the eighties, they tried to make a movie with um, Jack Tati, um, 
and they very nearly came to doing it, but Tati's health failed and they ultimately couldn't do it. And then uh, there was a long period where they didn't release any music in the late 80s because they were working on an anime adaptation with Tim Burton, where Tim Burton was going to direct, or maybe it was a manga, but he had this the rights to this Japanese property that he was adapting and they were going to write the music for it and then that fell apart and they kind of felt that um, they lost a lot of time by not being able to put out music during that time because they were working on that project and in the Sparks Brothers you do see some footage of them on the set of Annette and there is you know something just very heartening about seeing this and thinking ah they finally did it they finally you know managed to make a film project happen you know now that they're in there or close to in their 70s and have been kind of like hammering away at trying to make a movie work for um 40 years or whatever it is and yeah i think i think it's it, it serves as a good primer and a good complement to this although uh i think the movie works works fine uh without having seen that the other thing i think that is really interesting about the movie is like formally it's kind of very playful there's um moments where like obviously the 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 uh the puppet kind of like um literalizing an idea of where adam driver's character is kind of so self-centered that he can't totally believe that his child is actually a real person as opposed to an object that he can use uh and exploit um but also there is you know there are scenes in the movie where he's riding on his motorbike and it's very clearly a um uh projection you know back back projection uh in the background and you know so like there's a real kind of like at times like an artificiality and a very real sense of you know this is not meant to be our real world and there's a there's a great sequence where marion cotillard is performing on stage and she kind of like walks through the space and suddenly she's in the middle of a field and she turns around and you can see the stage behind her and you know there's like a lot of like really formally inventive stuff going on about you know kind of blurring the lines between different levels of reality what is real in the movie and 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 things like that and uh also you know the opening sequence of the movie is sparks performing the opening song called uh now may we start but they start performing it then they leave the studio where leos carax is watching them perform Mm -hmm. and He's saying like, oh, you know, let, let's begin, literally saying, let's start the movie. And then they walk out and Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver walk out and join them and they start singing. And then they're walking down the street in L.A. with, you know, singers behind them. And they're all kind of laying out what the movie is going to be about. And uh, old Simon Helberg joins them. He's also like the third lead of the movie. Uh, and he's absolutely uh, terrific in it. Um, I think most people obviously know him from The Big Bang Theory um but i've always enjoyed him in like smaller roles like his performance in uh a serious man as one of the, the rabbi who always talks about the car park i think he's really fantastic in this there's a wonderful sequence where uh he is a conductor he's the he's initially the accompanist to marion cotillard and then later on in the movie he becomes a conductor and there's a sequence where he is conducting and the camera is looking at him and it's kind of like circling around and he's kind of like talking because there's been a bit of a time jump and he's kind of like talking about where he is in his life and the camera circles around him in a single take and he's talking but then he says wait a moment i just need to do this and he's kind of like conducting more forcefully and when he comes back he picks up his train of thought and he's getting really emotional and it's again like the um we love each other so much sequence um it's kind of like a wonderful kind of collision of like all of these different um creative visions 
creating something that feels like very distinct uh so yeah i just wanted to say simon helberg is in the movie as well and is is really fantastic and uh yeah just kind of like does like a real great performance in that oh i want it i want it now so we'll go on to the final segment of our show which is shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week a little creepypasta done via the medium of YouTube called Local 58, uh, created by Chris Straub, who calls himself a humour scientist. Um, I think he mainly worked in comics, um, but then Local 58 is, I think, his first foray into kind of like video editing, and it seems to be in the sort of same universe that he's created through uh, his comics like on the web and and in books and it's just fantastically unnerving and very very darkly funny like big content warning for suicide folks but there's something about it's more about the medium is the message and it's this odd satire of kind of mass media and the possibility of emergency broadcasting and I discovered it through a YouTube uh, analyst and um, kind of, again, teller of creepy stories, Nexpo. But Local 58 is really great to watch either within sort of Nexpo's kind of review and like what's actually going on here or in and of itself. I think because I am still very much a, I think the correct term is scaredy cat worse pants <laughs> i found it really good to sort of watch it within the analysis of someone holding my hand because most of the videos are shown in their entirety in nexpo's video but i i love anything that just makes you figure out the story as you watch it and mm. and it's just an amazing way of kind of giving your brain a good tickle because you just kind of have to look for patterns and then is that where madness lies or a viable theory? Um, so, yeah, if you if you want a good spook, then I would say Local 58 is where you will find it. Cool. Uh, I'm also going to recommend something off of, uh, off of the YouTube. Um, so uh, a few months back now, we talked about uh, how like a bunch of people left Giant Bomb and in recent times... Uh, that site has kind of like shifted and it's become more of a platform for other people to kind of release content which has been an interesting thing to see and one of the people who has started working for them on a kind of contractor basis is a youtuber called Voidburger, who um, does like short video essays for them and I've really been enjoying those but um, the video that she did for Giant Bomb made me go okay I should probably check out her other work so I decided to watch a video essay that she did called a puzzle of flesh in an era of strife Ooh. which is a video essay about the horror game phantasmagoria 2 uh, a puzzle of flesh which is a kind of not particularly well remembered uh, fmv game from the sort of mid 90s but what's interesting about it is it is one of if not the only video games certainly of that era to feature a bisexual main character and the video the first like hour or so is context about explaining like what the 90s were like in terms of lgbt uh, qia 
plus representation in media, uh, which is very kind of like thorough and very entertaining and well researched. And it, it, she says like, you know, if you know all this stuff, you can skip to like the actual stuff about the game. But I would recommend people watch it because I do think um, it's very good in how she focuses on like the rampant gay panel jokes in Friends, and then also just like the failings of like the very special episodes of of Roseanne or again friends you know anything that tried to deal with like a, a gay wedding or something um and then once she has established all of that she kind of like talks about the game itself and talks about how interesting it is that this game existed at this time and what a kind of a milestone it is for an actual depiction of a bisexual character and not making it kind of feel other in fact making it feel like one of the normal things in a game that is very very weird uh, and goes into some strange directions with its plotting um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's like a really engaging essay that manages to make great use of its like hour and a half runtime where again, like that hour of context is really well established and then, you know, puts the game into, uh, you know, some sort of perspective in a way that I thought was like really well done. And the, just the entire presentation of it is really, really fun and engaging. So that is A Puzzle of Flesh in an Era of Strife by Voidberger, which is on YouTube. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player and Spotify, all the usual places. You can rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.